Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter number 12. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter, but I just want to read a couple verses here to kick it off. All right, Romans chapter 12, verse number 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Amen. So I was looking around online, and I came across an article. I'm not going to preach the article, but the article was kind of what led me to this sermon in in Romans chapter number 12. But uh, it was an article by uh, Joe McKeever. I want to just give him credit for it, but it was titled, 10 Reasons Small Churches Tend to Stay Small. And, you know, I've been looking for a resource. I've been looking at what have I done wrong or what am I doing wrong. And you just, everybody needs to remember, this is about the only disclaimer I'm going to give you today. If you get mad, remember God got on me first. So this list of 10 things, and I'll go over it. But uh, some of them hit me. Some of them may hit you. Some of them you may have seen in other churches. And uh, it says, 10 reasons small churches tend to stay small. And I'll just go over them real quick, and then we'll kind of look at them. But it says, number one is wanting to stay small. And uh, number two is a quick turnover of pastors. Number three is domination by a few strong members. Number four, not trusting the leadership. Number five is an inferiority complex. Number six is no plan. Number seven is bad health. Number eight is lousy fellowship. Number nine is a state of neglect permeates the church. And number 10 is no prayer. Now, remember, when you're getting mad, this isn't my list. This is a guy that was looking from the outside. And he actually, he says in his article that, uh, you know, he pastored three small churches. He knows more about growing a small church than he does a large church. So he said... uh, By using the word grow, I do not mean in numbers for numbers sake. I don't subscribe to the fallacy that bigness is good in small church and small churches are failures. What I mean by grow is reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can tell you that would fill my heart better than anything to know that this little church was responsible for leading people to Jesus Christ. It's like that little church over in Sweeney, Texas that does the shoebox ministry and they put out I always got to ask Matt for the number because it's kind of up there. I want to say 2,000, but it's higher than that, isn't it? Eight? But anyway, they concentrate on that ministry. That's their ministry, and that's the outreach that they have. Imagine, you know, a little bitty church, and, uh, you know, the pastor and his wife. It's so small, the pastor and his wife do all the bookkeeping and everything else pretty much. But people show up, and they help pack the boxes. They concentrate on one area that God gave them, and God has blessed it and excelled at it. But uh, he said, what I mean by growing is uh, reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For example, if you're located in a town that is losing population and your church manages to stay the same size, you're probably growing. And uh, 
He says, and I'm just catching highlights here, any church, large or small, that does not take place a high value on evangelism and outreach to the unchurched can't expect to grow. And it said, and, uh, but he talks about countless articles. But the first one is wanting to stay small. And he puts in quotes here. We like our church just the way it is now. And, uh, you know, it takes me back to when I was in the Navy and I was sitting in uh, Sonar Sonar 4 and uh, Chief Mueller, well, he was first class petty officer then, but he was telling me, he was talking to me and he said, well, are you going to do this? I said, well, I'm just a lowly third class petty officer. And he said, if that's all you think, that's all you'll ever be. So it's, it's, when you've set your mind that you are something, you become that. Or you stay at that because there's no reaching up beyond that. Um, he said, while this attitude usually goes unspoken, it might not even be recognized by its carriers. It's widespread in many churches. The proof of it is seen in how the leaders and congregation reject new ideas and freeze out new people. Um, the process of rejecting newcomers is a subtle one, never as overt as snubbing them. They will be greeted and chatted and with and handed a printed bulletin well, they will still be excluded. And he gives practical examples in here. And the example he gives, and I've been guilty of this, uh, Bob's class is meeting this week over at Tom and Edna's. You're coming into a church and visiting, and that's what you hear. Bob's class is meeting over at Tom and Edna's. And uh, immediately, you kind of feel a little bit excluded there. Everybody knows everybody's name. And then he gives a fix for it. And uh, he said, pastors who... Well, he says, let's see, unless you know who Bob, Tom, Edna, and Eddie Joe are and where they live, you're out of luck. He said, pastors who want to include newcomers and first-timers should use full names from the pulpit. Now, I said in part of the sermon, I'm just kind of giving you an overview of these things. And what I wanted to do by sharing this with you, because I prayed about it, and it was just going to be a regular message on Romans chapter 12, and every time I tried to put it together, it just wasn't going together. And then I kind of realized something, and I'm going to give you these little illustrations, but yesterday I was over at my dad's, and I had to use an electrical cord. This is just an illustration here, but I, I had to use his electrical cord because we were cutting a branch, and after all that, I still ended up using a handsaw. But, you know, a branch had come down. But he has these cords in the garage, and they, he puts these loops in them, and they go down to the ground like this. I mean, you could walk through the thing, you know. I've never been able to make them like that. And so when I was putting up, I just wanted to respect my dad's garage and put it back the way he would, and I just, I couldn't make a loop. Well, here's the thing. I could make a loop. I just couldn't make my dad's loop. You understand? So I'm sitting there looking at the message. I'm trying to get helps and things like that. And it occurred to me. It's like God kind of showed me. He said, Keith, make your own loop. And so here I am. And, and I said, well, I want to share this with you guys. So as we go forward, we kind of got the same kind of mild optimism that I have right now. And so that you understand, I'll be thinking during the week on things we can do. And to you, it'll sound like I'm making swings here and there. But just just. Try to understand what's happening, what's going on. Uh, a quick turnover of pastors. That's obviously not a problem here. But, you know, I have, I have known a church that uh, every couple years they go through a pastor, you know. 
He says a retired pastor who served his last church for some 30 years, he talks about how he was sitting in the office. He was filling in. He was sitting in the office and reading through the record. And uh, he said, uh, I had several hours to kill before the evening service in the church office. I was reading their history and discovered that in their nearly 50 years of existence, they've had 22 pastors. That's about half for the, you know, that's about one every two years or so. And uh, think of that. If they had around six months between pastors, that means the average tenure was less than two years. He was quiet a moment and said they didn't have pastors, they just had preachers. And I've seen that, you know, I've, I've seen that. Um, we're talking about why churches stay small. Again, no one will promise you that keeping a pastor a long time guarantees the church will grow, but I can assure you that having a succession of short-term pastors will prevent it from growing as surely as if you had taken a vote from the congregation to reject all expansion. And he talked about how, you know, it takes a couple of years for the pastor to get set in. And then uh, domination by a few few strong members, he said the process... Uh, by which a man, it's almost always a man, becomes a church boss is subtle and rarely, if ever, the result of a hostile takeover. Say the pastor of a small church leads for another town, the pastorless congregation looks within its membership for leaders to rise up and take care of things until a new pastor arrives. So two or three faithful and mature, we assume, members are chosen. They do their job well. If the next pastor leaves after an unusually short tenure for whatever reason, the congregation resorts to the fallback position. And that's how it happens that one of them or possibly all of them begin to make the important decisions for the body and everything works out. When the new pastor arrives, they let him know that uh, for anything he needs to know, he should call on them. The pastor quickly sees that these men have set themselves up as a layer of authority between the hired man, the preacher, and the congregation. Um, if you want to print out of this when I get done, or you may not care, I don't know. But these are just some of the reasons. So number three was uh, domination by a few strong members. Number four, not trusting the leaders. And uh, number five is an inferiority complex. Worrying about, and let me give you this example. He says, I was a seminary student. Let's see. I discovered that small churches are oft, often are stymied by inferiority complexes. We can't do anything because we're small. We don't have lots of money like the big churches in town, so they get small. To, they set small goals and ask little for the, of their members. One day, while I was visiting the First Baptist Church of a nearby community, and no way was it what we would call large, but it was three or four times the size of mine. The pastor and I were chatting about some program or other. He said to me, my people won't attempt anything like that. They'll say we're not large like the First Baptist Church in New Orleans. Now, remember, he's in a small church. He's in a larger church visiting, and the pastor's saying that, you know, we're too small to do anything. That's when it hit me. Feelings of inferiority can be found in any size church. I wouldn't be surprised if the new members of First Baptist Church in New Orleans were excusing themselves for their inaction by saying, well, you know, we're not Bellevue in Memphis or First Baptist Church of Dallas. <laughs> so there's always somebody bigger. You know, and uh, stuff like this hits home to me. It's like, you know, we have, a, we have our own race. We have our own lane. As Christians, we have our own race. We have our own lane. There is a sermon in this, trust me, as we go through. Um, the remedy is put one's eyes on Jesus and ask, Lord, what do you want us to do? He says, uh, want your church to reach people and expand and grow? Get your eyes off of what others are doing. 
Many of them, to tell the truth, are declining at a rate so fast it can hardly be measured. You don't want to take your cues from them. Ask the Lord, what would you have us to do, and then do it? And I told you, a lot of what's been holding us back is the scope on my, the, the scope I put on things. You know, I, we're a small church. We can't, you know, and it's been holding me back, holding us back. And here's one, and I'll tell you, because it's just family here, no plan. That really hit home. Listen to this. The typical stagnant small church is small in ways other than numbers. They tend to be small in vision, in programs, in outreach, and in just about everything else. Perhaps worst of all, they have small plans or no plans at all. The church with no plan, that is no specific direction for what they are trying to do and become, will content itself with plodding along, going through the motions of all churches everywhere, They have Sunday school and worship services and a few committees. Once in a while, they will schedule a fellowship dinner or revival. But ask the leadership, what is your vision for this church? And you'll receive blank stares for an answer. And since we're talking to family, you know, somebody started hitting home after I talked to another preacher. I had lunch with another preacher, and there was conversation that took place. But it's had me thinking ever since. And it's had me reevaluate. This, this isn't the sermon, Karen. <laughs> Karen is looking at me. Is he going to preach out of an article? It's just a big article. <laughs> Number seven is bad health. And this is where the sermon came from. I'm not going to lie. But anyone who has spent time in more than a few churches can see that some are just unhealthy. And by that, we do not mean they're small, they're sick. You can be small and healthy. Behold the hummingbird. Uh, an unhealthy church is known by, more by what it does than by a list of characteristics and attributes. A church that runs its preachers off every year or two is unhealthy. A church that is constantly bickering is unhealthy. A church that cannot make a simple decision like choosing the color of the carpet, adopting next year's budget, or accepting changes in an order of worship may be unhealthy. So what is an unhealthy church? And that's the question that comes up, right? And he says entire libraries could be filled with books written on the healthy church, and consultants abound ready to assist congregations toward that purpose. And then here it is. But Romans 12 is God's blueprint for a healthy church. Now, you can imagine I keyed up on that. I said, really? Verses 1 to 2 call for each individual to make a personal commitment to Christ. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Verses 3 through 8. Call for each one to find his or her place of service where they can use their spiritual gifts. And verse 9 through the end of the chapter describes the relationships within a healthy, loving fellowship of believers. He says, show me a congregation where members are wholeheartedly committed to Jesus Christ. Each is using or learning to use their God-given spiritual gifts in the Lord's service, and their fellowship is sweet and active, and I'll show you a healthy church. All right, we'll cover uh, the last three in the sermon, but, uh, well, verse number, uh, point number nine that I want to go to says, a state of neglect permeates a church. Not always, but often a dying church shows signs of its weakening condition, condition by the disrepair of its buildings and the neglect of its appearance. The interior walls haven't been painted in years and bear the collective fingerprints of a generation of children. 
the carpet is threadbare, the piano keys stick, the pulpit chairs need reupholstering, and the sign outside is so ugly it would be an improvement if someone knocked it down. That's a rough sign. So that's uh, number nine. Number eight talks about lousy fellowship. Said there are ways to tell if the fellowship of your church is unhealthy. Visitors are basically ignored, even resented in some areas. No one follows up with visitors to let them know they're wanted or to give information on the church. There's no attempt to get people to visit your church in the first place. Everything is orderly in the worship service, but the same order you've used since forever. The singing is lifeless, and any departure from the norm is verboten. A new hymn or chorus, a different kind of musical instrument, a testimony here, an interview there, a short drama or video. No, sir, not in our church. There's no laughter, nothing spontaneous. The invitation is tacked on, lifeless, and without any response ever. The prayers are stale and filled with platitudes. When the Old Testament prophets called on God to break up the fallow ground, Hosea 10:12 and Jeremiah 4:3, they wanted to see the evidence of brokenness, a willingness to change, a desire to bear new fruit. Fallow ground is soil that has laid unproductive for several seasons. The hard crust requires a deep turning plow to open it up, and even then the soil may require more preparatory work before it is productive. A church, and this this was a church with poor fellowship is not failing to have enough socials and dinners. The church is failing in the most basic area of discipleship, a failure to love. The, the disciple who is close to Christ loves the brethren. As such, a congregation that is unloving toward one another may be said to be far removed from the Lord and in a backslidden state. It's a simple deduction. Draw near to the Lord and he will draw nigh near to you. And in the final one, Number 10, no prayer. And he says it's tempting to make a little joke here and say some churches do not have a prayer, but they could if they chose to. And this struck home to me. When King Saul was bemoaning the woes that had descended upon him as a result of his rebellion against God, one of his chief complaints was that God no longer heard his prayer. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer. Look what he says to this. He says, Luke tells us, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Pray or quit, those seem to be the alternatives. When God's not answering your prayer, when you feel like it's just getting to the ceiling, keep praying and pray some more. So that's the, that's the article, and I know that was long, but I wanted all of us to hear this together because yeah, it's been weighing on me or, you know, it just... Just soaking in and thinking about it. And I know this isn't the 10 things that will fix a church. It's not like that at all. There's really one thing, you know, and that's everybody judging themselves. It's not for me to judge. I'm judging myself on where, what I can do or what, you know, what we can do going forward. I told you I'm taking the scope off. And I'll give you that passage here later. But in point seven... The author points out that some churches are just unhealthy, and he gives examples of the unhealthy churches. And uh, he says that Romans 12 is God's blueprint for a healthy church. So that's why I studied out. And he says Romans 12 is God's blueprint for a healthy church. And I already read that. So let's turn to Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, and look at... What makes up a healthy church? 
Number one, what makes up a healthy church is a church that's willing to sacrifice. You know, so many times, and a few times since I got out here, I've, I've just seen where it seemed like the church just beat people into action and beat people into action. And it kind of turned me off to it. It's like I, I saw where it's like we have to get that person in a position and we got to, you know, so that they'll be involved in the church. And when they're involved in the church, they'll become part of the church and they'll keep in the church. And But then I saw that person that really needed just some time to sit before the Lord and grow and mature in Christ. Maybe they just got saved. You know, they just got led to the Lord. And now they're getting put up on stage to sing. Or now they're getting put into uh, Awanas. And they end up leading that. They end up being the only driving factor behind that. Or maybe they go in the kitchen to help out. And they end up leading in the kitchen and doing cookouts for when they go on, uh, go on trips. And you said, uh, it doesn't matter what they did. But, you know, go on camp out and they're in charge of the cooking for that and all that. When really what they needed was some time to sit before the Lord. There's people that are willing to sacrifice their time. And there's people that are willing to sacrifice their money. And there's people willing to sacrifice their labor. But this is a hard one for a lot of people. And Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So one thing I want to point out to you, Paul says, I beseech you. He's not telling you that you have to. We could force people to act right. We could, we could build a culture in which people reinforce. That's called a cult. And in some churches, it runs like that, where people are there, accountability crews or whatever you want to, whatever face you want to put on it. You can make people behave according to your structures as long as they're under your control. They do it every day over there in the jail over in Galveston County. They make them behave. But it's different to turn yourself over to the Lord. It's different to lay yourself on the altar and say, Lord, have all of me. It's a willing sacrifice. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. He's asking, he's, he's asking you to present yourselves a sacrifice. And it says, and be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. So number one, it's a willing sacrifice. You can give over your, you, what do you do when you make a willing sacrifice? Well, you give over your own will. You say, Lord, what would you have me to do? You give over your own purposes. You know, a lot of times, it's, it's so much easier, it seems like, to when I, back when I was learning how to regulate life and I was reading self-help books, you come up with a plan and you follow that plan. You come up with a bucket list. It may be climbing to the top of the pyramids or it may be I'm going to travel to Europe one day or I'm going to, I'm going to make this much money. I'm going to do this thing. But when you turn your purposes over to Christ, your focus becomes God-focused. Your focus becomes on what does God want me to do? Does God want me to talk to that person? What is the Lord teaching me through this? It becomes eyes off of me, and it becomes eyes on the Lord. Does that mean that you have to go off and become a missionary? If you do that without the Lord leading you, does that mean that you have to have your children become uh preachers and, and singers and play the piano in order to follow God's will. If you're doing that and God's not leading you, all you're doing is pushing somebody into a life of misery. I promise you. 
You're pushing somebody into a, into a structured life that they're not ready for. God calls them. Preachers aren't mama called and daddy sent. They're not supposed to be. Are y'all following me on this? I see some people drifting now. Don't drift on me. This is good. It's been digging on me. But he says, uh, you give over your own means in order to do what God wants to do through you. And that's the trick. If you want God to use you, if you want God to work in your life, if you want to be able to pray, and it doesn't hit on the brass wall, brass ceiling, and it doesn't seem to get up to heaven, are you willing to sacrifice yourself? Are you willing to put yourself on the altar and be a living sacrifice? See, and that's the other part of it. Well, let me go on. When you read in God's Word and He tells you whatever... To, to do whatever. And when, when you're reading God's word and he speaks to you and he moves on your heart, then you do it willingly because you're giving yourself over to the Lord so that it's the first thing is that it's a willing sacrifice. It's out of love that you follow Christ. You can force people to do something. You can make them do it. But when it's done out of love, it's done right. And it's a, it's a sacrifice of love. When he says, I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God. But when we see the mercies of God, it's an understanding of Romans 5a. We love, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But uh, it's a reasonable sacrifice, he says, which is your reasonable service. It's a reasonable thing of God to ask when Jesus Christ gave his life for you. And it's a transforming sacrifice. Romans 12, 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It, people, one of the main things, they want to know, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? But they're not surrendering some area of their life. They're not laying on that altar. Uh, Adrian Rogers painted the picture, and I've heard... Uh, Dr. Peacock do it also about that flesh being thrown on that burning altar and it wanting to crawl off the flame. You know, we go through the trials and afflictions. We go through a tribulation. When you poke your head up, <laughs> I told Didi, I said, you know, it sometimes it seems like as soon as I poke my head above the hole, Satan whacks it. And you get afraid to poke your head above the hole. So I, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to do what God wants me to do. I want us as a church to do what God wants us to do. But it's a transforming sacrifice. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. So when you become a living sacrifice and you put aside the world, we still have to live in this world. We still have to work in this world. And we still have to interact with this world. But you no longer do the things the way the world does. That's the difference. You don't move off to Guyana. You don't, you don't go into a monastery. You don't get away from the world that way. But you become different within this world. You become a different person. Did you lie before? You don't lie now. Did you steal before? You don't steal now. Did you hate before? Did you take out your anger on someone? When God transforms your heart, you no longer do things the way the world does. The way the world accepts.
Lying, envy, pride, and much more go to the wayside. So the question is, how much better would this world be if instead of selfishly demanding rights, instead of selfishly demanding what you have coming to you, because you really don't want what you got coming to you, that's why you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But when we, when, if people weren't standing out there demanding what they've got coming to them or demanding to have their way, I've seen so much selfishness. I dealt with some people. I, I've talked with some people that I, I used to work with. I'll give you an example, an illustration. I went to the bank one time, and I got, took out a withdrawal. I got over to the register at the Walmart, and I was counting, and she'd given me an extra $100. It's like, whoa, I don't want her to get in trouble. So I went back over there, and I gave, you know, I said, hey, you gave me too much. I gave it back. Oh, uh-uh. No, they pay me too much. I'm keeping it. That's their fault. I said, well, what if they shortchange you? I'm getting that too. Everybody demanding their way. But when you do things God's way, things work a little smoother, don't they? Because he says over here, and look over in verse 14. Look at this list is given as Christians. And apply it to the church also. Because you have, if you have a, a domineering, you know, people that dominate, if you have... Uh, hostility, if you have disagreements over the carpet, if you have uh, disagreements about things going forward, you know, all that would be erased if you're following Romans 12. Because he says here in verse 14, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not, rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Now that sounds like a church that's a hospital, right? A church where people can go to heal. He says, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide, for, provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Put that in the church. You know, over in Georgia, the Southern Baptist churches, this is where I saw it the most, that you've had, you've had churches that have been in the family for 100 years or 60 years, and their grandfather, their great-grandfather, they were deacons, and you've got a head deacon that's been there for so long. And if the pastor wants to do something or the, the church wants to move forward, it's just a fight back, it's a pushback. And that church can't ever really get past a certain point because one's taking preeminence over the other. And if we take it the Bible way, if we look in this, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Not only is it a uh, transforming sacrifice, but it's a, it's a living sacrifice, but it also the healthy church is a, a church of service where the members step up, a humble service. Look at verse number three. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think soberly according as God had dealt to every man the measure of faith. We get ourselves lifted up. You know, the, one of the things the Bible teaches is not to put a young, not to put a young person or young in the faith up as a bishop, as a pastor, because they'll get high and lifted up. I, I remember when I first surrendered to preach, and I remember, you know, I, I got nervous about that when they asked me to be Brother Grady's associate pastor to help him. I got nervous about that, and I made some mistakes. I hadn't made any since then, but, you know, I made them back then. <laughs> yeah. They can't hear y'all laughing, so I just need to clarify this for the recording. <laughs> but uh, there, there is a danger of getting lifted up, of lording over people. We're not to lord over people. We're to minister to them. And we all have a ministry. And so... He says, for the grace, for the, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So when you look at this list of reasons, a small church stays small, as you read Romans 12, you see that if the church members follow this in their lives, it would eliminate some of the reasons by default. And one of the reasons was number five, domination by a few strong members. And then it talked about, we, we read through that and uh, it said self-appointed church bosses tend to frustrate the pastor's initiatives. And down at the bottom, the remedy, the congregation must see that the key lay positions in the church rotate, that no one stays chairman of deacons for 30 years or treasurer for a generation. Maybe members of the congregation should feel free to respectfully ask questions about why decisions are made. Most of this is for me, but... Church bosses can't stand the light of day on their activities. They wouldn't understand. We, we try to keep everything open, and we have. Um, even though they convince themselves what they are doing is in the interest of the congregation, and he said, read about Diotrephes in the little epistle of Third John. He loves to have the preeminence. And we've all known people like that over the years in different churches. I know I have that have, that have had the preeminence, that have, you know, it seemed to have gotten in the way. The other thing to note, not only is it a not only is it to be a humble service, but it's a collaborative service. Look at verses four through five. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. We're all in this together as a church body. We are the local church. We're all in this. And if the church falls or if it stands, we all fall or stand together. It's a collaborative service. It's a faithful service. Look at verse number six. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophecy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And if you don't think that didn't hit me when I got to number, uh, when I got to the no plan part. Not slothful in business. 
Be diligent. And it's a faithful service. We need to be faithful to the ministry that God gives us. God works through everybody differently. That's the beauty of it. You have hands. You have fingers. We all have different abilities and different talents. And when we work together, all of that meshes together. But if we try to work separately or apart, we, is it, we, we fall short. We end up taking on too much. We end up losing out too much. And then there's fellowship. When you look at verse 14 through 21, which we read about. But fellowship. One of the problems listed was lousy fellowship. And, uh, you know, it wasn't about having dinners and things like that. But it was just about the unspoken things. I know at Calvary, uh, there was a lot of love at Calvary. One thing I saw, though, is when somebody come in, they didn't know where to sit. I called it pew ratting. Because they come in, they'll see somebody's book or they'll see somebody's blanket. This is just a practical example. It's just these little things that, that make people feel like, well, I'm not part of this. I'm in somebody else's house. When somebody comes in, you want to feel like this is the house for them. So pick your stuff up if you've been leaving it. If you hadn't, don't worry about it. But I remember at Calvary, you know, there'd be a blanket. There might be, uh, man, they would leave out their workbooks and they'd leave out toys on the pew for their grandson. (laughs) So when they came back, it was there. Over in uh, 1 John, in 1 John, and you can go there or not, but over in 1 John, we see that fellowship is around with each other through our fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to turn to it. 1 John chapter number 1 and verse number 3. And it's just one verse, but he said, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. This is John. He's talking about, I saw Jesus. I handled him with my hand, the word of life. He said, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We fellowship around with each other, and I've mentioned this before, but we, we join together in fellowship around Jesus Christ. We met each other because of our love of Jesus Christ, amen? When me and Dee first came here, it was Church of Acts, and we were the Bible study over there, and uh, well, I won't tell the whole story how we got here, but we go to visit, and everybody was gathered around the Word of God. And that was just fine with us. Everybody had their Bibles open. We'd been in churches where it just, you know, you might have a, a song, you might have a, some article or something, but, you know, and you might get around to the Word of God by the end of it. But when we walked in, we see everybody got their Bibles open. That's what we wanted. I remember one time we were, and this was in Georgia, we were kind of in between churches. We go to eat at Zaxby's, and we're sitting there, and there were some people over there talking about the Bible. We went over there and asked them, what church are you part of? Because if they're talking about the Bible at lunch, what are they talking about in church? I remember in Decatur, Alabama, they had a fellowship thing, a big old church. They had it on the grounds. We're out there and we're standing around. I didn't even know who Paul was back then. Standing around and one of the fellas is like, you know, a lot of times I, I can really see what Paul went through. You know, I can kind of, and just hearing them. I mean, he wasn't talking about the game. I mean, this is Alabama that we were living in, right? They'd be talking about football. They might have got around to it, but 
they were talking around the word of God. They were fellowshipping around. Their fellowship was with Jesus Christ. And that's where ours needs to be. We read through the last part of Romans, but it can be summed up with what Paul told the church at Philippi. You know, there's a lot on that list, but when you look over in Philippians, he says, if there therefore be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You know, the world has gotten even worse. It seemed like there was a time when man would kind of think of his fellow man a little bit, and maybe they do in pockets, but I just keep, maybe it's just what the news feeds me that gets me so riled up, and I'm going to quit watching. I really am, and I have backed off. But uh, everything you see is somebody hating somebody else. Deedee doubts it. I see that over there. But everything you see is somebody hating everybody else because they disagree with each other politically or they disagree about one thing or the other. They're canceling companies. They're trying to put them out of business. They're trying to put people out of business. They're trying to, you know, destroy people. And there's hate. It's all about them. It's all about what they want. It's all about what their group wants. And none of it meets in the middle. And I ask myself, what can change that? What can change the world? And then I remember, I have a Savior. I have my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He spent three and a half years on this earth. He had 12 men that followed him around, and one of them was was from Satan. And through those 11 men and one more, but through those disciples that followed him around, he changed the world. He took people from hating each other to trying to help each other. Whatever you may think about other ministries or whatnot, you know, Samaritan's Purse or whatever ministries, you know, who art thou that judges another man's servant to his own master? He standeth or falleth, yea, he is able to hold him. But whatever we may think about other ministries, their heart is a heart and a desire to lift others up above themselves, to set themselves aside to serve others. So there's other parts in the article that could be addressed. But one thing you notice it, one thing you notice it with this article in those 10 things, you could go back and solve every one of those little small church things that he pointed out by having a healthy church, by having members who are willing, number one, to become a living sacrifice for our Lord Jesus. Now, I think I already shared it with you, but I want to remind you of this, about the scope coming off, and any other time I can flip right to it. Matter of fact, that's how I found it. 
I wasn't trying to play Bible bingo because I taught y'all not to. But I opened up my Bible and I started reading that and I said, you know, that's right. Y'all ever read? I know y'all have. I know I'm not the only one. You've read it. You know what it says. It hits you at another time. But right in that moment, it speaks to you. And in that moment, and I'll come up with this later, but in that moment, I realized you need to take the scope off. And uh, it says, he that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. As thou knowest not what is the way of the spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. We don't know what God's going to use. We don't know what word fitly spoken. We don't know what prayer. We don't know that sitting there talking at a Zaxby's about the Bible is going to lead someone to your church or to lead someone closer to God. We don't know that knocking on that door and inviting them to church, or we don't know that inviting, as we're looking at next, inviting somebody that God brought to your mind when I mentioned it, inviting them to church. And y'all pray for me, and I'll pray for myself. I'll pray that we have a good message and that we have a good service. And uh, we'll let God give the blessing. It says, and then verse number six, and here's where the scope comes off. In the morning sow thy seed. In the evening withhold not thine hand, for thou knowest not whither shall prosper, either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. So we don't know what God's going to do, but we'll move forward. So the marks of a healthy church is a church that's willing to sacrifice, a church that's willing to serve. Is there something that you can do? Is in a church that is selfless when it comes to dealing with others? All right, Miss Maxine.